Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of John, chapter 11. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. Come and follow me. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, said Elijah, follow him and serve him. But if not, if Baal is your God, follow him. But choose you this day whom you will serve. Oh, love it. Love it. Love it. Spurgeon understood. Are you listening? He understood the gospel of Jesus Christ divides mankind. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You're either for him or against him. You're either following him or you're opposing him. He will not allow you to be indecisive. And in the words of Mr. Spurgeon, divide, divide, I say, divide. Well, in our text, let's get back there. In our text, look at verse 47. There's a division among the council. The council, if you're taking notes, you write this down, is the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court, the High Court, the Sanhedrin. This is the only time in John's gospel that the Sanhedrin is mentioned. The chief priests were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in anything spiritual. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in anything spiritual, which made them sad, you see. I love that one. I've been telling that one for 20 years. I love that one. And the Pharisees, well, they were legalists, and they, uh, you know, put burdens on people, you know, the Pharisees, and, uh, and they were the legalists of that day, which uh, meant that they weren't fair, you see. I like those. I don't know. I've been doing some for years. So they gather, notice in our text, they gather together this council, the Jewish council. Y'all with me? Say Amen. Uh, they, they gather together and they say, what do we do with this situation? What's the situation? Well, the situation is Jesus is doing miracles and they're afraid that if they don't do something, more people are going to turn away from them and turn to Jesus. Look at verse 48. The Romans will come and take away both our place, their position, and the nation. Now, remember the Babylonians had come and taken them out of their place before. So keep in mind now, they are currently under Roman rule. And the Romans would arrest anyone that gave them problems and ship them off to another country, and then they would mix into another world. So the Jewish council is afraid that that might happen to them if they don't do something about this Jesus. The council fears if more and more people believe in Jesus, the Roman Empire, who actually rules Rome, will come crashing down and take away the little bit of freedom and autonomy that they do have, and they will destroy the temple and the nation. They are afraid if the numbers of people keep growing that a Zionist frenzy will begin to break out against Rome, and then Rome will crush Israel. So you've got to understand, right here, the stakes are high. 
Things are intense. So in their minds, Jesus is not just a blasphemer who needs to be stoned. He's a threat to the existence of the nation of Israel itself. So we learn from this that the goal of the council is not truth. The goal of the council is survival. Look at verse 49. In response to the threat, Caiaphas, the high priest, has a word. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. In the Greek language, he says, you guys are blockheads. I told you if you read your Bible, you'll know that. Actually, it says you're ignorant. Truth, it says you're ignorant. You guys are ignorant. Caiaphas, you know, or do you, was known for being arrogant and rude and egotistical and opportunist and a manipulator and a godless phony bent on getting what he wanted by hook or crook. And he says, you know nothing at all. Doesn't that sound like a good bumper sticker? I think I'm on to something. A good bumper sticker, you know nothing at all. Somebody riding behind you, you know nothing at all. I think I'm on to something. Don't y'all steal my idea, all right? Give me my cut. Y'all remember crummy Caiaphas? That's what I like to call him. Matthew chapter 6, he asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, yes. That's exactly what Caiaphas wanted Jesus to say so he could justify his intent to kill Jesus. So in our text, this is the same Caiaphas. He says, listen, you guys are ignorant. He says, it works in our favor that one man dies for the nation. Listen up. Either Jesus dies or the whole nation goes. Look at verse 50. Caiaphas says, look, if we don't get rid of Jesus, there's going to be a rebellion. Rome will squash it and we all die. So if either Jesus dies or the nation perishes. Don't you get that? And in verse 51, it's fascinating because John tells us later that he did not say this on his own authority, but he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now take notes, write this down. The word for can also read instead of or in place of the nation. The word for is used in the context of substitutionary atonement. So John tells us Caiaphas didn't realize what, he was, what was coming out of his mouth, that he was prophesying not just the death of the Jews, but for all of God's children that were scattered abroad, all the Gentiles. Saints, get this, listen up. God, fascinating. God takes the mouth of a blasphemer to speak truth. God takes the mouth of a blasphemer to speak truth. You know why? Because truth is truth. I don't care who it's coming from. Truth is truth. And you can't argue with truth. Why? Because it's truth. Say amen. You can't argue with truth because truth is truth. Even if it's coming out of the mouth of an ungodly, atheistic, antagonistic, rude, disrespectful man like Caiaphas. 
This blasphemer speaks truth, and God has done it before. I think of Saul in the Old Testament prophesied in a place of disobedience. I think of Balaam, who was an antagonist to the nation of Israel, and he prophesied. When we get to chapter 19, verse 19, Pilate writes, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Don't you know the story? And the religious leader says, don't put that there. Put, he said I'm the king. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate was prophesying that Jesus was the king, not realizing Jesus is the king. Did you get that? Caiaphas, I'm waiting while you clap your hands. That's a great point from the scriptures. And Caiaphas is doing the same thing. In his arrogance and pride, he's prophesying about the death of Jesus. Now remember, saints, listen, stay with me, okay? Remember I told you uh, some studies ago, I think we were around chapter four or five, and I talked to you about this word providence. And I told you that this was a good word to remember. Are you listening? I told you that this was a good word to remember, providence. The word providence, if you don't have it written down, please write it down. It means to see in advance. It means a supernatural arrangement of natural events. Providence is not to be confused with good fortune fate or luck. Good fortune is blind while God is all seeing. Faith is impersonal while God is a father. Luck is dumb while God can speak. There are no blind impersonal forces at work in the affairs of men. Everything that happens in this world in your life is brought to you by the providential hand of God. You ought to be clapping your hands right there. And here in our text, God's providential hand is causing Caiaphas to prophesy the death of Jesus. They thought by killing Jesus, they'd save the nation. But think about it. They ultimately killed Jesus and they still lost the nation. Y'all didn't hear me. They killed Jesus, still lost the nation. Roman General Titus Vespasian, he goes running and marching into Jerusalem with his army and he levels the city. He levels the temple. He burns, he shoots a bunch of arrows inside the temple and it catches fire and everything in there because everything inside the temple was made of gold. And everything began to melt. And all the gold began to melt between the cracks of the bricks of the temple. And Titus Vespasian's army took the temple down stone by stone, brick by brick, and scraped all of the gold, and they kept it. And it was just as Jesus prophesied when he said he stood over Jerusalem on, on the mountain, and he said, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have desired to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You missed your day of visitation. Jesus' heart was broken because he could see 70 A.D., even though he had already been crucified, he could see 70 A.D. that Titus was going to come in and destroy the city and kill the Jews and take over Jerusalem. So they still lose the nation and they ultimately kill Jesus. Fascinating, out of a blasphemous mouth, prophesying the death of Jesus. Look at verse 54. From this point on, Jesus had ended his public ministry. And look at verse 54. We'll read it. We haven't read it yet. Look at verse 54. If you're looking at it, say amen. amen. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked among the Jews, but went from there into a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. 
And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus. And he spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? You think he's going to come to the feast? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might do what to Jesus? Seize him. So from this point on, saints, give me your attention. From this point on, Jesus has ended his public ministry, and he went to an area called Ephraim. Ephraim, write it down, means double fruitful, double fruitful. Ephraim is about 12 to 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Jesus went to this area. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Remember I told you, whenever you see the words, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about, are you listening? He's talking about the moment that he goes to the cross, that hour. And then he's in the garden and he's praying and the Roman soldiers come to get him. And he says, father, my hour has come because they take him. Arrest him, beat him, crucify him. So whenever you see my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the hour of his crucifixion. So Jesus went to this area because his hour had not yet come. And he spends his time in an area called double fruitful. I love that. This must have been a cool thing for the disciples to spend this time with Jesus in the area called fruitful, as it may have been a very fruitful time in their lives to spend this intimate time with Jesus. Well, verse 55, the great feast of Passover was coming. Crowds are swelling in Jerusalem. Many things are, uh, are, are, are even more unstable. And on top of that, the name of Jesus was in the air. There's an all points bulletin out on his life. Jesus is on the most wanted list. Right now, things are intense. Are y'all getting that? ready to explode on the Temple Mount. One commentator said, this was like dry kindling waiting for the match of the messianic fever to land. The atmosphere, did y'all get that? The atmosphere was like dry kindling waiting for the match of messianic fever to land. Now, the Old Testament law said that if you committed certain sins, certain sins, that you had to go to Jerusalem 30 days before the Passover uh, for early purification to get ready for the Passover. There was also a general purification for the Passover for seven days. If you've been to Israel with us, and by the way, we're trying to go back. It's a wonderful trip. Every time I go, I learn something different. Save your coins and come go with us. But each time we go there, we go to the southern steps of the temple, Mount. And on the southern steps, we always sit there and we have worship and Bible teaching. And for those of you that have been with us on the southern steps, you know the steps are uneven. This is fascinating. Stay with me. The steps are uneven. So this, you might, you know, step up, uh, uh, you know, step is like, you know, three, four inches or whatever. Then the next step might be eight inches the next step might be three inches high. The next step might be nine inches high. The next step might be two inches high. And so they would be in this kind of, you know, a misleveling, uh, if you will, uh, as you ascend up into the temple. And below that are these um, stone um, 
mikvahs, they call them, or their ceremonial bathtubs is what they are, cleansing bathtubs for the priests to cleanse themselves and then to change their clothes and then to begin to ascend the steps going into the temple for temple duty. Um, The reason for the unevenness in the height of the steps is for many reasons. One, uh, you would never, never, never run into the presence of God. And if they were even, like we have like codes and stuff. For y'all builders and stuff, y'all know there's codes, right? Where steps have to be certain. Ron, what's the inches on the code? You don't even know. I thought you knew something. You don't know nothing. I need a new assistant. I'm just kidding. What, what, what is it? 15 inches? I got eight and a quarter and 15. Whatever. What is it? Eight and a quarter residential. What is it? Seven commercial. How do you know that? What was I telling y'all? Right. So you got to go up into the temple for several reasons. <laughs> you go up into the temple for several reasons. One, you don't run into the presence of God. So with the unevenness in the steps, you have to contemplate each and every step as you go up. You've gotta, and you've got to keep your head down, which speaks of humility. You've got to keep your head down and watch every step as you go into the presence of God. Otherwise, you'll fall and roll back down to the bottom and have to start all over again. So the steps are uneven to keep you in an attitude of reverence and an attitude of realizing that you are approaching a holy God and you don't run into his presence or hurriedly run and get into his presence that you contemplate and you think about what you're doing and you, in a humble way, you approach. So those steps in that order have been that way for 2,000 years. It's a fascinating thing. If you can ever make a trip to Israel, uh, you should do it. And below those steps are these, again, these purifying ceremonial baptismal carved in uh, solid rock. Verse 56 tells us what the atmosphere was like on the Temple Mount. They were looking for Jesus. Look at verse 56. They were looking for Jesus. They're standing in the temple area, and you would think they're saying to themselves that, is Jesus coming or not? You think he's coming? Is he coming? Who knows? You think he's coming? In the Greek, it actually says, certainly Jesus is not coming because he knows that there's an all points bulletin out for his life. Now understand something. Jesus isn't walking to the timing of people. Jesus is walking to the timing of the father. In verse 57, the Sadducees and the Pharisees gave an order that if anybody knew where Jesus was, that they must report Jesus. So obviously there was an announcement made out loud in the temple precincts. If anyone knows where Jesus of Nazareth is, they should tell them. You know, I'm reading this and I thought, you know, that's the mentality of many people today. Stay with me. I'm coming in for landing. They're on the Temple Mount and everybody's looking for Jesus. Where's he at? You think he's coming? You think he's going to come? Maybe not. I don't know. You think he's going to come? Where's he at? Everybody's looking for Jesus. And I thought to myself, you know, that seemed to be the mentality of 
the church today. What has crept into the church today is a bunch of Jesus lookers. I'm a blog. Jesus lookers. Jesus watchers. People who come to church to watch Jesus. They don't come to church to participate in the worship environment or to participate in the things of the kingdom. They come to watch what's going on. I don't know where that changed. We as believers are not to come to church to sit in the pews and watch worship happen, watch Pastor Matt as he plays the guitar. That's why we don't really, we have a choir, but they sing on special occasions or whatever, but because we as believers in this church understand that we are the choir. We, the body of Christ, we are all the choir. And we all need to be singing to the Lord, not watching what happens up here. And I don't know how that changed and where that changed, where worship has become a spectator sport. Churches are filled with Jesus watchers, people who just come to see, people just looking and saying, oh, that's interesting. No commitment, no genuine faith, no salvation, no deep love, no desire to serve, no desire to worship, just want to watch others worship. Listen, Jesus said, I am looking for those who worship me in what? Spirit and in truth. Jesus is looking for worshipers. And if we don't learn anything, If you didn't learn anything today, learn this. Worship is participatory. We're supposed to participate. And me personally as a pastor, I can feel it. I can walk in this room. It's palpable to me. I can feel it. When people are just singing, mumbling the words. I told you Wednesday night, was it Wednesday? I told you, I said, Jesus, God is not blessed because you came to church. Say amen. God's not happy that you came to church. God's not blessed that you're sitting here mumbling some words. What blesses the heart of God is when you sing those words and say those words and they, 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 they assimilate into your heart, into your life, into your mind. And so it's not just words coming out of your mouth, but it's something that is your heart's desire. It's something that's your, I'm waiting while you clap your hands here. And so we don't, we don't need to be a church that full of watchers. Watch Pastor Matt worship. Watch the singers sing. Listen for the right, oh, did they hit every right note or whatever? We're to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now listen, I'm coming for a landing right here. The last verses here in John are all about the reaction of the miracle of Jesus. And my question to you this morning or this afternoon, is what is your reaction? I want to challenge you to change your focus about John chapter 11. Because people, John chapter 11 is about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Do you know that is no big thing to Jesus? Raising Lazarus from the dead is no different for Jesus than healing a headache. That is no big deal. And that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is what is the people's reaction or what is your reaction to this great and awesome miracle? How do you respond to it? How do you react to Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you reject him? 
Or are you one that just watch and looking? Or are you a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit participating in the kingdom? What's your reaction to the miracle? Because the miracle itself is no big deal to God. We are talking about the God who said light be and light was. We're talking about the God who created everything that you see out of nothing. Therefore, the raising of the dead is nothing. That is one of six miracles we've already talked about. The point of the chapter is, how will you respond to what he has done? How do you respond to Jesus? Where are you at with Jesus? What is your relationship like with Jesus? Are you a watcher? Are you a spectator? Or are you one who loves Jesus, who serves Jesus, who comes to Jesus with an open heart and says, Lord, here's my heart. Here's my life. Lord, I made a decision. I'm not, are you listening? I'm not divided. I made a decision. Where are you with Jesus? You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at one 800 293 That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.